You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. William Martin, the chairman of the Federal Reserve in the 1960s, wanted to raise the Fed's discount rate, which simply said is the rate that it makes its reserve funds available to member banks to then loan to others, which impacts the interest rates that we see and theoretically impacts the economy. Martin was aware that bank panics and depressions occur when an economic boom gets out of hand, and he was frightened by the increased government borrowing and spending on defense contracts dictated by the Vietnam War. President Lyndon Johnson certainly didn't want Martin to increase the discount rate, and he made an unusual plea. You know, Bill, he said to the Fed chairman, I'm having my gallbladder out. You wouldn't do this while I'm having my gallbladder out, would you? The president said. Caught off by the comet, the surprised Fed chief could only muster up that he had had his gallbladder out and didn't think it was so bad. But later, he told his wife, what if I do increase the discount rate and the president dies in the hospital or something? In the end, Martin waited about two months, and the stunt earned Johnson a little bit of a break from a Fed rate increase that would in turn have a negative impact on the overall economy. As the chairman of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve Bank, technically, Martin didn't need to respond to the president. And although Martin regularly attended economic advisory meetings at the White House, he was under no obligation to do so. Unlike cabinet officials who serve at the pleasure of the president, Fed chief is not necessarily a part of the administration. He's appointed for, for a four-year term by the president, but truly that's where the influence should end. A Fed chief never really has to go to the White House except when they want to. But, of course, this is the theory, and politics is reality, and few people said no to Lyndon Johnson's personal brand of politics. And although Martin kept an independent air during White House meetings, he obviously, in this instance, felt some of the pressure of the Johnson treatment. Paul Volcker was turned off during a Reagan administration when he was called into the White House and then given a speech by the President's Treasury Secretary, James Baker, about the President's re-election and mourning in America. Appointed by Jimmy Carter in 1979, Volcker did not see his job as political and he stiffened up and would not make any commitment about what the Fed would do. Soon, Baker tired of Volcker's obstinance and after Reagan appointed a few new members to the Board of Governors, went around the chairman and the Federal Reserve Board of Governors did a rare thing in outvoting its chairman and advocating a lower rate. Volcker threatened to quit, actually crafted a resignation letter but eventually he calmed down, though later he did step down. His replacement was Alan Greenspan, the Fed chair that will probably go down in history for having the most name recognition, for holding the most political, economic, and media power. But even he ran into a conflict after his appointment with George Bush Sr.'s White House, who wanted the Fed chairman to ease up on rates prior to President Bush's re-election. President Bush waited. One month before he would need to be reappointed, Nicholas Brady, Bush's Treasury of the Secretary, asked Greenspan a series of questions. 
which Greenspan skillfully answered. Convinced that Greenspan was going to move to lower interest rates and expand the economy, President Bush reappointed Greenspan. When Greenspan did not immediately signal a rate decrease then, in the election year, Brady froze Greenspan out of meetings at the White House as well as parties and social events. Brady even called the other members of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve and asked for a rate decrease, but found them all solidly behind Greenspan. And while in 1992 the Fed did make two small rate cuts, Greenspan, citing evidence the economy was rebounding, did not move fast as fast as the White House did, and did not make a crucial rate cut in October prior to the election. Many in the Bush White House felt that Greenspan had contributed to Bush's loss. Of course, there were numerous other factors. Perhaps Richard Nixon best summed up the relationship between a Fed chair and a president, at least how a president sees it, when he said of his nominee, Arthur Burns, I respect his independence. However, I hope independently he will conclude that my views are the ones that should be followed. Burns did turn out largely complying with Nixon's views, including uh, taking the money off the gold standard and several rate decreases. But apparently on one occasion when he didn't, stories appeared in the newspaper about how Burns had achieved a raise for himself. But it is Greenspan who will turn out to be the most well-known and the most politically important Fed chair and he was sought out to support both Bill Clinton's 1993 budget plan, famously with Clinton ensuring that the camera panned to have Greenspan sitting next to First Lady Hillary Clinton when President Clinton announced his plan. Uh, Greenspan's support of George W. Bush's tax cuts, or at least his qualified support, helped the plan pass in 2001. Even though the Fed has no real control over the Dow Jones or what investors do in the stock market, His influence really spread from the money markets into the equity markets, and his words were often enough to keep a long-sustained bull market going. A trained jazz musician, Greenspan carefully played the media and the market, ensuring that his otherwise mysterious role would lead to maximum economic impact for the country. Good growth without ruinous inflation or bank panics. Presidents took notice. Presidents from Reagan to Bush Sr. to Clinton seeing him as a potential savior. But how did Greenspan, or the current Fed chairman, Benjamin Bernanke, get this power? Surprisingly, despite dark stories about the Fed, which are understandable, given that it does have a secret and secretive nature and an unelected power, with economist Milton Friedman blaming the Fed for the inflation of the 1970s and Congressman Ron Paul of Texas introducing bills right now to abolish the Fed. We can often ask, what is this Federal Reserve? Why is it here? Understand the Fed. You've got to understand the concept of liquidity, the amount of money available in the American economy, and that great first historical attempt at it, the 19th century institution known as the Bank of the United States. If you're president, whether you're James Madison, Woodrow Wilson, or George W. Bush, the one thing you want, you want money flowing through the economy. You want businesses to have access to money to expand. But you don't want so much money out that the, that the money loses its value and the whole system has no credibility or confidence. How do you get money flowing through the economy without creating a power that's stronger than the American government itself. We've really struggled with that question throughout our history. As the nation started, money was a problem. In the 1790s, the United States had just three banks, but more than 50 different currencies used in circulation, including foreign currencies, English, Spanish, French, 
Portuguese coinage. You had notes that were issued by states, you had notes that were issued by cities, or even large retail operations or companies or stores. The values of these currencies were wildly unstable and were ripe with speculation. And so, in 1791, the original Bank of the United States was formed under the aegis of Alexander Hamilton. The concept of the bank was this. There would be 10 million shares of stock. The U.S. government would buy the first 2 million. But since the U.S. government didn't have 2 million in 1791, it would be placed as a loan and payments would be made from the U.S. government to the Bank of the United States in annual installments. The remaining $8 million of stock would be made available to the public, both in the United States and overseas. Anyone who bought this stock had to at least pay one quarter of the purchase price in gold or silver so that there would be some stability to the bank. Now, as we look at this and consider Hamilton's plan, it sounds something like a Ponzi scheme. There's no money, and yet you've now created $10 million of stock. Understand what it does for the nation. By insisting on the conditions, the Bank of the United States might technically possess just a half a million in real money, but the bank could and would with that make loans up to $10 million. In addition, it served as a depository for collected tax monies. It can make short-term loans to the government to cover real or temporary needs. And it prevents the government from being hobbled. Instead of just relying on the money that you raise from taxes each year and only being able to spend that, and as a new nation with road projects, with canal projects, with, with a navy to eventually to fund, uh, you know, more monies are needed than probably what tax revenue is always going to bring in. It became a very useful instrument for a growing nation. However, its charter expired in 1811, and at that time, the Republicans under Jefferson and Madison controlled the government, and after a close vote, it was not renewed. After the War of 1812, when the government again needed to borrow money to finance the conflict, James Madison pushed through the second bank. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert Styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Of the United States. And that bank helped the nation prosper, but also engendered fraud and corruption. When Andrew Jackson was elected president, the bank drew his ire and he saw it as everything that was wrong with America. A centralized bank representing the eastern and northern interests of the country controlling the money supply. The bank's chairman, Nicholas Biddle, 
supported Jackson's opponent, Henry Clay, but he did more than just that. Biddle decided to seek an extension of the bank's charter four years early in 1832. Henry Clay thought the issue was a winner, and they wanted the battle over the bank to occur right in the middle of Andrew Jackson's re-election campaign. For the Bank of the United States, it was a huge mistake. Henry Clay pushed the bill through Congress. Jackson vetoed, and in his message of the veto, Jackson used language which appeared to resonate mostly with the common man of the country, pointing out, that a fourth part of the stock was held by foreigners, and the rest were owned by just a few hundred Americans, mostly among the richest class. There was some demagoguery in Jackson's message. After all, this money from foreigners and rich people were helping finance projects all over the United States, as well as businesses and farms. But in any case, Jackson vetoes the bill, sets up a system of state banks which were ridiculed by the opponents as pet banks, as they often were friends of Jackson or his associate Martin Van Buren, and dissolved the Bank of the United States and stopped making U.S. tax payments to the bank. Jackson was re-elected, but in a dying gasp, the bank would have the revenge that a moneyed entity can hold over a democratically elected politician, and that is the ruin of the economy. In response to dechartering his bank, Nicholas Biddle called in the bank loans that the bank had outstanding, which meant that small banks had to call in their loans, and thus farmers, businesses, people had to now pay back their loans and also were without new sources to borrow money from, leading to an economic disaster in the country. The pet banks set up by Jackson and Van Buren were not in place fast enough to distribute money through the economy. But the real impetus for the Federal Reserve System, we know, comes in three events. The Panic of 1907, the activities and secret meetings of Senator Nelson Aldrich of Rhode Island, and the election of Woodrow Wilson. Let's start with the Panic of 1907. This was also known as the 1907 Bankers Panic, and it led to the stock market dropping nearly 50%, the economy being in recession, and numerous runs on banks and trust companies. And it all started when one particular trust, the Knickerbocker Trust, of got a little bit too big and national banks ceased to honor their checks. That caused a run on the trust, which eventually led to runs on all the trusts in New York. Lacking a national bank or a U.S. government influence on the money supply, J.P. Morgan stepped in to meet the crisis. He organized a team of bank and trust executives using his own personal and financial influence. He got agreement within this team that they would redirect money between themselves, secure international lines of credit, and bring stocks up. And it worked. Within a few weeks, there were only minimal effects on the country, and by 1908, confidence in the economy was restored. But at this point, Congress was spooked and wanted to do something, and Senator Nelson W. Aldrich from Rhode Island, the Republican uh, majority and the minority Senate leader, was head of a commission to look at this. He personally studied the European central banking systems. But if there are conspiracy theories about today's money supply or about the founding of the Federal Reserve, there's nothing like a meeting on a small island to do nothing to quell those theories. In 1910, Aldrich and executives representing the banks of J.P. Morgan, Rockefeller, Paul M. Warburg, a prominent Wall Street investment banker, and Frank Delano, who would 
be Franklin Roosevelt's uncle. But most important of the attendees, as it would turn out, was Colonel Edward House, a Texas millionaire and Democratic kingmaker who would later become President Woodrow Wilson's closest advisor. This group decided to create legislation creating a national U.S. Reserve Bank owned by private bankers, but regionalized in different areas of the country to avoid the criticism that there was this one large bank. By the time Aldrich would propose legislation out of the Jekyll Island Conference, now the Democrats were in power, and they didn't want this Aldrich bill, and led by William Jennings Bryan, they torpedoed it. The Democrats started holding hearings. These uh, Pujo hearings of Arsene Pujo, Representative of Louisiana, nice Cajun name, in which J.P. Morgan had to testify. The hearings convinced the public that America's money rested in the hands of a select few on Wall Street. If by a money trust is meant an established, well-defined identity and community of interest between a few leaders of finance, which has resulted in a vast and growing concentration of the control of money and credit in the hands of a comparatively few men, the condition could just describe what exists in the country today. So on one hand, you have the bankers, the so-called money elite, meeting to try to fix the system. And on the other, you have progressives and Democratic congressmen very concerned about the status quo. Both would like change, but both have different ideas. So change would really only occur with the election and political influence of Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson was elected on a promise of progressive action. He had been supported by William Jennings Bryan, the biggest progressive leader in the Democratic Party, and he had a comfortable majority of both the House and Senate, and he wanted to take action on a number of problems, and this concentration of money was one of them. So what is the Federal Reserve System? It might be better to understand the Federal Reserve System by what we didn't get. What we didn't get is some progressives, and William Jennings Bryan, who was serving as Woodrow Wilson's Secretary of State, wanted. We didn't get a U.S. Department of Money. We didn't get a reserve system totally controlled by the government that would, based on either the President or the Congress's direction, lower and raise reserve lending rates. We did not get a proposal, Bryan, that the government simply issue $200 million and give loans to cotton, wheat, and corn farmers. And we didn't get a guaranteed seat for a farmer representing the agrarian interest on the Federal Reserve Bank. We also didn't get what some elites wanted, a Nicholas Biddle-style single bank based in New York or Washington, D.C. that would have no government appointment or regulation. The Federal Reserve Act, championed by Carter Glass, who was a Democrat from Virginia, whose hometown of Richmond would end up becoming one of the member banks and thus doing much to recover the economy of Virginia, or the perception of that, is something of a hybrid. It's not exactly a bank, but it's a Federal Reserve system. It's led by a board of governors, each appointed by the president and approved by the Senate, and they serve for 14 years. Then there are 12 Federal Reserve banks located in major cities throughout the nation, each acting as fiscal agents for the U.S. Treasury. They're in Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Cleveland, Richmond, Atlanta, Chicago, St. Louis, Minneapolis, Dallas, San Francisco, and Kansas City. The choice of cities reflects two things. One were the major population centers of 1913 when the legislation was proposed. So San Francisco, one western city, was enough at that time to cover that region. Now a lot of the population has moved west. 
And the other factor, of course, was politics. So to get the crucial votes of senators from Missouri, there's both a Kansas City and a St. Louis branch in the same state. So you've got the Board of Governors, you've got the actual individual 12 banks. Each of these 12 banks have member banks, which are nationally chartered banks that own stock in their district Federal Reserve. Then you've got various advisory councils, and because this was a system of governors appointed by the president, there is a, an advisory panel of bankers to sort of keep them happy. So it's really a system. But the most important element of the whole Federal Reserve system, or the most watched, is the Federal Open Market Committee. And that consists of the whole board of governors, seven members, and then five of the regional governors of the bank elected by them to go serve on the Open Market Committee. This is the entity that makes decisions about discount rates and the buying of treasury bonds and other things that can have impact on the economy. Not everybody was thrilled to death with the Federal Reserve Act when it was proposed. Some who had attended the Jekyll Island Conference with Senator Aldrich felt that this Federal Reserve Plan was exactly the same thing with a different name. But it's not exactly so. When Carter Glass presented his bill to President-elect Wilson, Wilson insisted that the plan be amended to contain a board of governors appointed by the president. He did not intend these individuals to be bankers, and he did not intend them to have too much individual power. When Treasury Secretary William Gibbs McAdoo asked how important these individuals should be and where they should come in the, in the ranking of federal government, he said, right after the fire department. This government control of the Federal Reserve System, in addition to the regionalization of having the 12 banks, were enough to appeal to progressive. So the Federal Reserve Bill would not be torpedoed, but in fact would be championed by the nation's greatest progressive leader, William Jennings Bryan. Wilson convinced progressives that because Federal Reserve notes were government obligations and the government maintained control over the Federal Reserve Board, the plan fit their demands. Also, just as convincingly, he argued that the system was decentralized into 12 districts and surely would weaken the New York and strengthen, strengthen the hinterlands of the country. On that premise, progressive Senator Robert Owen of Oklahoma eventually relented to speak in favor of the Federal Reserve Bill, arguing that the nation's currency in its current state was too controlled in the hands of the New York wealthy, whom he alleged had single-handedly conspired to cause the 1907 panic. Now, while the system of 12 regional banks was designated to take away influence from Eastern bankers. In reality, that hasn't happened. The New York Federal Reserve Bank has become, among the 12, the first among equals. Has the most employees, pays about five times as much salary as any of the other banks, and it controls most of the market operations that the Board of Governments and the Federal Open Market Committee directs. When Wilson presented the bill to Congress, a group of Democratic congressmen revolted in protest led by Representative Robert Henry of Texas, demanding that the money trust be destroyed before a major reform of the government's currency was to be undertaken. They didn't like the fact that the system still involved private banks. It was also not liked by bankers. When the American Banking Association heard that board members were to be appointed by the president, they said, for those who do not believe in socialism, this plan is hard to accept. But Congress did pass the Federal Reserve Act in late 1913, Mostly partisan bases, most Democrats in support, most Republicans against. Wilson named Warburg and other prominent experts to direct the system. It began operations in 1915. And right as it began, World War I broke out. 
And World War I is seen as sort of a success story for the Fed, but in reality, the Fed did a little more at that time than sell government bonds to support the war. Uh, a function, as economist John Kenneth Galbraith said, as an adjunct to the Treasury. And the Fed turned out to be ineffective in response to bank panics. More banks failed in the 20 years after the Fed was formed than the 20 years before. They did not avert a significant bank panic in 1920, only seven years after its founding. And the Fed's ability to put liquidity into the economy may have contributed to 1920 speculation and boom. And then when the Depression occurred, the Fed raised its rates in order to protect its money supply. And so a system created to help the economy and avert bank panics really in its first years failed. In fact, it would not be the Federal Reserve, but the actions of Franklin Roosevelt that would create the foundation of the banking system we know today. And in 1933, passing the legislation that would lead to the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which backs up your deposits. The record of the Fed in fighting inflation throughout the 70s and 80s is also not admirable. Milton Freeman, the classical economist and leader of the Chicago School, argued that the Federal Reserve System, while it didn't cause the Great Depression, it made it worse by contracting the money supply at the very market moment the markets needed liquidity. Current chairman of the Fed, Ben Bernanke, also stated the same belief, but assured that the Fed knows better now. Milton Friedman also famously pointed out that the Fed is almost always wrong because it makes changes too late to help the economy. And thus, it's always the doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. He said that ideally, he would prefer to abolish the Federal Reserve System altogether rather than reform it. And he said he'd like to replace it with a computer. So it would seem that the famous recent occupant of the Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan, started to argue with the theory that the job of the Fed could be done by a computer and apply a more human, and one might say a musician's touch. And he attempted to jawbone and play right where the economy was, being careful about rate increases or decreases, and making sure that even the smallest action on the part of the Fed would have the maximum effect on the markets and the economy. While the Federal Reserve did not prevent the recession of 2001, and doubtless it could not, his actions in slowly raising rates near the end of the 90s and then slowly lowering them could be argued that the rate decreases had a palliative effect in the most recent recession, at least lowering interest rates at a time when people needed it most. All in all, it could be said it's not a, has not been a bad 25 years for the Fed. And there are also minor accomplishments that the Fed doesn't get a lot of credit for that it has achieved throughout its history. It has made check clearing much easier and eliminated fees, improved communication uh, between banks. It freed up more money, made more money available to individuals. It decentralized money, giving federal credibility to banks in places like Cleveland or St. Louis. So we didn't have the effect as in most countries, where all of the money capital is in the political capital. And it built a foundation by which Franklin Roosevelt could then set up the FDIC, which backs up the money that you have in the bank at deposit, and also that quasi-government entities such as Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac could be built on the foundation of the Federal Reserve to make home buying easier for Americans. It's not likely that today's low rates or terms of 30 years can be available without those quasi-government agencies that were sort of created in the foundation of the Fed. The Fed has also, throughout its history, remained free from corruption or scandal. 
And what the Federal Reserve has also done is taken a lot of the politics out of decisions about the money supply. While it is true that presidents continue to pressure the Federal Reserve and try to put the Fed chairman back to where Woodrow Wilson wanted him, which is slightly under the fire department. Since the founding of the Fed, you don't see as many arguments about the politics of gold or silver money, of inflationary policies. Of course, that could be seen as good or bad, depending on your perspective. Engineered by elites, refined by progressives, half a tool of the president, and half an independent capitalist entity, an entity that failed in preventing the greatest economic earthquake in modern American history, but yet has had an overall impact on liquidity to Americans. That is the Federal Reserve that we know. And with history beating up politics, I'm Bruce Carlson. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.